0: We are gravely concerned about the fast deteriorating situation and ongoing military action in Ukraine. The humanitarian consequences on civilian populations will be devastating. There are no winners in war. We stand ready to support efforts by all to respond to any situation of forced displacement. Accordingly, we have stepped up our operations and capacity in Ukraine and in neighboring countries. We remain firmly committed to support all affected populations in Ukraine and countries in the region.
1: Welcome to Engineering Matters, I'm Bernadette Ballantyne.
2: And I'm Alex Conacher, and the voice you just heard was from the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi. He was referring to the perilous situation currently facing people in the Ukraine who are under attack from Russia.
1: The UN is predicting that four million Ukrainians will need shelter and support as they flee to neighbouring countries, making this the largest refugee crisis to face Europe this century.
2: Sadly, this is a feature of a bigger problem. Right now, there are more displaced people in the world than at any time in our history.
1: Back in 2019, we reported on this from the UK Shelter Forum, where we learned that 70 million people were displaced by disaster or war.
2: Now, that figure stands at 84 million.
1: And people who are displaced need places to live, water to drink, food to eat and infrastructure to support them.
2: At the UK Shelter Forum we discovered that there is a huge amount of work underway to improve the quality of shelter that's provided to refugees, including new tools to support humanitarians in planning accommodation.
1: In this episode we hear about the new Shelter Assessment Matrix. It was under development at the University of Bath and now it's live and has been freely available since November 2020.
2: The design assessment tool helps agency staff to design accommodation that's appropriate to the needs of the refugees, and it considers 34 issues, from building physics to the culture of the occupants.
1: The project was led by a researcher who was himself a refugee and became a civil engineer so that he could help build back his country of Afghanistan. We hear his story and much more in episode 34, Crisis Shelter for Mass Displacement.
3: At the beginning, it was a tent. It was a turbulent tent. I remember it was a very, very temporary tent. And then, slowly, slowly, as we we lived there, my mother started kind of uh, collecting uh, whatever the local resources were available, like available, like poles and all this stuff. So we we keep you keep adapting the shelter to to your need, making a creating a place for for fire and for cooking area and all this stuff. because you can't cook inside that tent at the beginning the, the government, the local government wouldn't allow you to do any construction. So I didn't understand any of those. Now those things make sense to me that why wouldn't we have a house? Why wouldn't we allowed to build? Why wasn't I allowed to go to schools where other kids would go? So I at that time I didn't have any idea. It was just yeah.
1: Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and in this episode, we needed to talk with humanitarians, engineers and refugees. And then we found Narula Kuchai. Noor is a civil engineer. He's worked for an aid agency, and he's a refugee twice over. When he was a young child, his family were forced to flee Afghanistan as war raged between rebel Afghani Mujahideen fighters and the army of what was then the Soviet Union, backing the Afghan government. Part of the Soviet strategy involved bombing rural villages to weaken their support for the Mujahideen. As a result, almost 3 million people from Afghanistan fled to neighbouring Pakistan, including Noor, and here he stayed for the next 10 years in a Pakistani refugee camp. I met Noor at the UK Shelter Forum in London. The Forum describes itself as a community of practice for individuals and organisations involved in reconstruction in the wake of natural and humanitarian disasters. And for this episode, we've partnered with the Forum sponsor, Mott MacDonald.
3: The school was for refugees. It was taught by refugees. And we were in a tent almost a decade. I lived with my mother there.
1: After 10 years of fighting, the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan in 1989, and the refugee camp in Pakistan was closed. Noor and his family returned home. He'd graduated from the refugee school, and back in Afghanistan, he went to university to study civil engineering.
3: Back home in Afghanistan, we needed engineers to build back the country. Then there was this boom in the construction industry in, in Afghanistan by, as the Americans or the ISAF were, came to Afghanistan with the international community. So there was quite a boom in construction industry and the country needed engineers. And that's why I chose to become an engineer to help rebuild the country.
1: But Noor never forgot the kindness of the humanitarians from the UN's refugee agency, UNHCR, who'd helped them.
3: That's what really inspired me at that time. The aid workers kind of were like the angels who save lives because they would bring you food, they would bring you non-food items, blankets, milk. I remember milk, we used to receive these tank, the tanker that would distribute milk. That was a, a bit of painful stories. there are so many because you have to, you had to queue for a long day to get one litre of milk and then at the end you would reach there and it's end, emptied or finished. So you go back home empty-handed.
1: This experience made Noor determined to help others who found themselves in crisis. It was Noor's turn to be an angel.
3: And then I studied civil engineering there in the eastern region and then went, uh, got a job in, at unicef which was just an amazing feeling.
1: Noor's experience puts him in a unique position, and as he sees it, there's a knowledge gap between disaster management and engineering expertise.
3: So um, the problem with the aid sector is well, there's engineering, then there's disaster, and there's, there's engineering for disaster. So there's a gap. Those who know engineering, they don't know much about the disaster management, and those who know disaster management, they do not know engineering. So to fill in the gap, we need to develop these non-specialist tools, what I, what I call... Uh, which are easy to use, which are free, and which are which do not require too much time, like many other standard optimization tools in the industry. So this shelter design tool, which we call Shelter Assessment Matrix, uh, it will be freely available, uh, easy to use, and you won't need too much of uh, you won't need too much of knowledge or information to use it.
1: The Shelter Assessment Matrix is one of the outputs from a wider collaborative project to improve shelter called Healthy Housing for the Displaced. This has brought together NGOs, academia and the private sector to improve living conditions in refugee camps. It's being led by the University of Bath, where Noor's undertaking a PhD, having been granted asylum in the UK in 2016, when he became a refugee for the second time.
3: All the design criteria in this tool have come from the end users. So we have done hundreds of focus group discussions with refugees in, in various camps and all the needs... And all the priorities have turned, all their priorities have turned into the design criteria for shelters. And then now the, the aid worker or designer will, will match the shelter in, in respect to the priorities of refugees.
1: Agencies like UNHCR have a range of suppliers and shelter types to choose from when procuring temporary accommodation. The shelter matrix aims to ensure that the agency is not only considering climatic conditions and cost, but the local context and social needs of people.
3: So the output will be that it will give you a diagram that will tell you the performance of that particular shelter in that particular context. So if you have six designs as an aid worker or as an employee or as a designer, it will tell you which shelter meets the most your priority.
1: The team is currently collecting feedback from aid workers and building this into the shelter assessment matrix. This will then be available as a free downloadable web app. The research team, including Noor, tested it at the Shelter Forum, where the focus was on promoting cross-sector collaboration to improve shelter for displaced communities. It was sponsored by Mott MacDonald with Oxford Brookes University. Humanitarian organisations, engineering companies, academia and technology suppliers spent two days sharing ideas in a bid to close the knowledge gap that Noor referred to. The timing for the event could not have been more poignant, with displaced groups of people being higher than any time since the end of World War II. Brett Moore is the Chief of the Shelter and settlement section inside UNHCR and co-lead for the Global Shelter Cluster.
4: The number of forcibly displaced people around the world is absolutely enormous. It's a, at the highest point at any time since World War II. We've got around 70 million, uh, just over 70 million forcibly displaced, and more than 24 million are refugees. So UNHCR was set up as an agency specifically with the mandate to take care of refugees. So within that, those that are in need of um, shelter assistance, I work on the programs that are there to assist them.
1: And most displacement situations are caused by the very issue that sent Nor to Pakistan, war.
4: The top displacement uh, situations are really as a result of the Syria crisis and the crisis in the Middle East. Also South Sudan, we've had more than 1.1 million people cross over into northern Uganda in the last uh, three years. I mean, the number of people that have had to leave Syria but are also displaced Inside Syria is really enormous. You know, seven, eight million all up. So we've had we've got a huge number of affected people there, plus various legacy caseloads across Africa and the Middle East. Not recent displacements, all of them, but uh, many of them displaced for years. I mean, we have um, refugee settlements that have been inhabited for more than twenty years. We have, uh, according to our data, we have around six hundred and ninety refugee and IDP settlements.
1: IDPs are internally displaced people. They're refugees within their own country. When people are displaced because of conflict, whether refugees or internally displaced, they usually don't get to go home for a very long time, if ever. But the places they flee to often struggle to accommodate the hundreds, thousands, and in some cases, millions of additional people. It compounds the hardship and trauma for those who've escaped danger and creates an additional burden on the host community that may already be struggling to survive.
4: I mean, a lot of the emergency camp planning process is a very rudimentary in nature based on the Sphere standards.
1: The internationally recognised Sphere standards focus on key life-saving areas such as water supply, food security and sanitation. Planning refugee or IDP settlements is based on the presumption that they'll be temporary. Camp development is conventionally reactive and ad hoc. Brett says that work's hampered by the host community's reluctance to accept that refugees may stay for years or even decades.
4: So giving a permanent solution to refugees in terms of shelter is very politically complicated. But really after 20 or 30 years of working according to that, it was very clear that the settlements that were being planned actually, as we mentioned, They don't disappear and in fact they become more and more formalised and they often morph into new towns. And because of that, it was clear that we had to start planning them in a very different way and bring in the best of urban planning and urban design tactics early in the process.
1: It involves work on two fronts, to engage and work with local politicians to make longer term master plans and technical solutions possible and to develop improved solutions to create more socially appropriate, habitable and sustainable settlements
4: so that's really what the master plan was about and also to think broadly about integrating landscape issues and flood risk analysis and um you know look at kind of layers of information and think it think of a uh, you know think at different territorial scales so not just concentrating all your interventions on the camp itself but what was happening with the host communities and further around and looking at the economic situation and livelihoods and employment and transport and thinking broadly about the situation we're really entering into from an early stage.
1: The ultimate goal being to ensure social cohesion, especially in urban areas. Brett says this is particularly critical when the displaced population's large and the host population's small. One way to do this is to help host communities understand the benefits and opportunities that arise with the arrival of so many new community members.
4: There is this popular, I guess, misunderstanding out there that having refugees is a drain on services. The data clearly shows that when refugees are incorporated into national systems when there's a process of inclusion there's a net economic benefit that they are not a drain on the education system the health system the social services that all the data actually shows that it's it's indisputable so what we're doing is trying to change the narrative and also see then for local people for host communities that hosting refugees is an economic stimulus
1: Changing the narrative means highlighting situations where host countries have benefited from the arrival of refugees. Local governments have collaborated with the NGOs and realised that new people can help them meet their own needs.
4: The one that's more well known, and and maybe your listeners aren't aren't familiar with this, but is um, Uganda. And that was really where you had a government that had a very active, politically engaged and welcoming situation. They have a national legislation and framework there called REHOPE. And as I mentioned earlier, there's around 1.1 million, 1.2 million, Uh, South Sudanese refugees that have moved into northern Uganda and the government um, welcomed them because they see this as a real um, stimulus to these poor poorer isolated uh, low density rural communities and now a lot of these communities are very vibrant, in fact the refugee settlements, they're very sparse and open and spread out they're not a traditional kind of high density camp by any means also the fact that the refugee community and the host community come from the same ethnic group so the social cohesion works very well they're working on the land together refugees are allowed to farm the land they're allowed to buy and sell land and property so they're off to a good start let's say a really good start right from the beginning and therefore refugees invest in their own self-determination and their own ability to move forward. So that, that is a really great thing for them because they go in there with enthusiasm to make a success of themselves and contribute to, to you know, the situation around them.
1: REHOPE stands for Refugee and Host Population Empowerment and critically it recognises that shelter for refugees need to be planned over the long term. Uganda's decision to provide land and work opportunities for displaced people is creating economic growth, which benefits both refugees and host communities in northern Uganda. With local policy and social cohesion being so critical, I asked Brett what the role of the private sector should be. He pointed to some recent work by Mott MacDonald, which has supported the sector with its expertise.
4: But now with this really big global shift in population and these refugee numbers increasing remarkably, a couple of years ago um, they began a process called Engineering Hope and that has been a really forward-thinking and progressive way that Mott MacDonald has said, okay, we want to step forward and we want to be an, an organisation that is really able to rally the troops and, and you know build some consensus and understanding of how we can work in this situation.
1: Engineering Hope started within Mott MacDonald City's business led by Anne Kerr and it started with a single question. Could the plight of refugees and their host communities be improved by targeting the best of modern project and programme delivery? Consulting leading practitioners, it looked at the potential for combining modern planning design and construction with innovative finance, health, education and social care, project and programme management plus institutional capacity building. The aim was to provide integrated and sustainable buildings and infrastructure, plus essential social services that would benefit the indigenous population, as well as provide a soft landing for the refugee community. Anne says the most important message to come from Engineering Hope was about collaboration. No one organisation or no one discipline or no one company has got the solutions. The word collaboration is fundamentally important. Collaboration between the private sector and humanitarian agencies means closing this knowledge gap from both sides, enhancing understanding of the technical professionals on the constraints and reality of disaster relief, and raising awareness among humanitarians about how to improve shelter from a technical perspective in an achievable way. And to do this, communication is key. Dr Francis Moran is also part of the Healthy Housing for the Displaced project that created the shelter assessment matrix that Noor described. Before entering academia, Francis was a builder and when undertaking research in Jordan he was able to make cost suggestions to improve shelters that were immediately implemented by UNHCR and they cost nothing.
5: We're working primarily in in Jordan, that's where I'm centred and I have one project in Turkey but my colleagues have also been to Ethiopia and Afghanistan where we've done thermal comfort surveys, probably the first of its kind to try and ascertain the levels of thermal comfort people are having to to endure or put up with in shelter provision around the world for refugees.
1: Temperature sensors and other monitors were combined with surveys of residents to gauge their perception on what was comfortable. Dr. Dima al-Badra was one of the field workers talking to Syrian
6: refugees in Jordan. So the the way we do um, thermal comfort surveys is by asking people about how they are feeling in the exact moment in time when we're asking the question. So they would tell us they are either feeling neutral, that would be zero, or they're feeling slightly cool, slightly warm, hot, cold. And and uh, we record we record the, what we call the thermal sensation vote. At the same time, we record the temperature, the air temperature, globe temperature, the relative humidity, and the um, airspeed inside the shelter. We use this information to then get a sort of, you know, if you you plot all this data, after asking 300, 400 people, you kind of, you can see that there is a, a temperature that the majority of the population is comfortable at. Um, and then there is a band where, you know, which is the slightly warm, slightly cool. What, this is what we call the comfort band. So in Jordan, that was from 17 degree to um, 28. A Syrian herself, Dima said that
1: people she worked with were happy to contribute to a study that might improve shelters of the future, even if it didn't change their own lives. The data she gathered was then fed through to other work streams within the Healthy Housing Project, including Francis, who says that small changes can make a big difference.
5: Dima, as you said, we will go and do the field survey and identify problems normally where they're either too cold or too hot. And then we set about first by doing thermal modeling to try and work out how we can improve the performance of these shelters, whether it's more insulation, better ventilation. and um, We use thermal mass and other techniques, simple building physics is applied um, on, on, on the ground just to try and improve thermal performance.
1: At the Azraq camp in Jordan, which houses around 40,000 Syrian refugees, Francis and his team, working with the UNHCR and the Princess Sumaya University for Technology in Amman, began investigating measures to improve the thermal performance of the transitional shelters known as T-shelters, where temperatures were sweltering and unbearable at over 40 degrees.
5: Well, there's 12,000 of them built so far. They measure six metres by four metres. They're made from um, steel frame a 30 by 60 millimetre rectangular tube. The walls are clad internally and externally with a thin metal sheet called IBR or inverted box ribbing, it's a simple metal cladding. It has the same on the roof, but only on the upper surface. On the underside of the roof is a simple tarpaulin that forms a ceiling in the structure.
1: Each structure has just one door and one window, usually on the same side. And there's a single skin kitchen extension on the side of the shelter. These have been selected through a procurement competition run by UNHCR.
5: Dima, my colleague, conducted the first field survey there to record the actual temperatures inside these shelters. We then modelled the shelters, worked out some interventions that we thought would be effective. And we then went there and did it in August 2018. And we set about, we were given a village of 12 shelters. One of them we left as a control, so we actually did nothing to it. And in the other 11 shelters, and, um, we did interventions that passive and active. The active ones were quite simple. One was what we call a desert cooler. A more technical term would be an evaporative cooler. In short, we took an office fan, which we bought in a local shop, put it on a box. And in the box was a, tray, a metal tray of water to about four inches high. And the fan sucked air in through this box, which was surrounded by Hessian. And in the box was a small circulating pump that pumped water to drip on the Hessian, so the Hessian became wet. So in effect, we drew in hot desert air through wet cloth. And because the hot air was making the water evaporate, it, the energy to cause this simple building physics to happen was taken from the incoming air itself. So the air comes in probably six to eight degrees cooler just from this simple device, it cost $20.
1: Francis and his colleagues are now putting together a performance report on the range of interventions available, which will be submitted to UNHCR to inform their future investment. But some steps were so effective, the agency implemented them immediately.
5: One of them was to do with the insulation that goes over the steel frame. Previously, they were simply butt jointing these sheets of insulation. And because of the difficulties of working in the desert and in the wind, it's windy quite a lot there, it was very hard to ensure a continuous joint. So we, we suggested simply why don't you overlap the sheets of insulation by a minimum of 50 millimetres and then you've reduced the risk or eliminated the risk completely of any gaps in the structure. So that was a, really a no-brainer and a cost-effective solution.
1: The second suggestion involved making use of some locally available scrap pipework, cut to act as spacers between the insulation and the cladding. Originally, the self-tapping screws used to fasten the cladding to the steel frame were squeezing the air out of the insulation, reducing the insulative benefits by
5: 5%. When I saw this, when we did our first um, strip down of a shelter, I thought, well, how are we going to sort this problem out? And, and I saw in one corner of the site some off cuts of um, water pipe that was used and it turned out that was ideal. We could cut the thickness of that the same dimension as the insulation, i.e. fifty millimeters thick We simply used it as a spacer so wherever you screwed the the cladding to the frame you inserted a spacer and we've already measured about a two degree improvement in the internal temperature. These these are no cost solutions and they've already been built into the instructions for building these shelters.
1: At a more strategic level the data on thermal comfort has been used in creating the shelter assessment matrix and for the first time there's now a database of how shelters are performing in climates around the world. Mark Macdonald is also a partner in the Healthy Housing for the Displaced project, which led to this breakthrough. Anna Riton has been working on improving emergency housing in Chile and was also the project manager on the Engineering Hope project that Anne described. She explains
7: how the consultants been improving shelter designs. I'm a facade engineer, but well, it's related to the envelope of buildings and how do we build better buildings considering sustainability considering that the envelope is one of the most important things and what it will protect you from the outside environment so that knowledge was transferred to the healthy housing because it was all a lot about thermal performance so we have a, a building physicists engineers and architects inside months so we try to put together all those expertise and see where we go with a shelter how can we make it better
1: one of the projects that Anna worked on was with a local Chilean charity called Fundacion Vivienda, who has been providing emergency shelter in Chile using insulated timber frame
7: shelters for many years. And we took their latest design and analysed it and assessed it in different thermal performance, architectural components, or architectural um, features, but also considering how all this shelter. Uh, could be adapted to other contexts because they were for Chile and now we adapted a shelter for Jordan. So how can that be transferable to other contexts? This was then analysed using design software to assess
1: how changing the materials affected performance, but they also considered social and cultural aspects of design in order to make the basic shelter more of a home for the residents.
7: So it was an exercise of how can you make a more holistic response on, on a shelter, on a project. And considering that it's a house, it's not just a shelter. I don't like much of the word shelter. I like more it's a home because people can stay in these uh, houses for more than five years and it's effectively their home. So psychologically, you need to give them like a, a, a good and, and, and a safe place to be. A key part of the
1: research undertaken by the Healthy Housing Project was that refugees all over the world were consulted on what they needed and how that would affect design. A huge issue in the past has been the provision of inappropriate shelter, because those supplying it did not appreciate the local cultural needs or habits. By using participatory design, shelters of the future will be more likely to reflect these local needs, be that higher windows in Jordan so that women can't be seen from the outside, or evaporative fans to keep the temperature down. Shelters are not the only things that have had to evolve. As displacements become more common, the humanitarian sector too is changing, moving towards enablement of displaced people to support their own recovery. Jake Zarin's is part of the Disaster Response Team at Habitat for Humanity, a charity that supports housing provision around the world. He started his humanitarian career following the Boxing Day tsunami of 2004, and he was in Sri Lanka when it happened.
8: And at that point, it was very much about building houses for people who had lost them it was very focused on numbers you know meeting the need of of those who'd lost houses giving them uh, a physical replacement if you like um and ideally one that was was stronger and better suited should there be further disaster however that had a lot of limitations it was very much driven on, on a product an end point you know we wanted to build x number of houses and over the years and and this has been linked to funding streams but also changes in in what people think are important or how they measure success things have moved more broadly to approaches particularly where cash is involved um, where people encouraged to to actually build the houses themselves but then also a realization that the funding we receive probably Meets 10% of the need. The rest of the population solve their own problems, um, rebuild their own houses. So what we've seen increasingly is is the sector trying to embrace broad issues um, than just the physical house itself. How it, uh, housing interacts with livelihoods, protection, things like that. But also, how do we reach that 80% that are not receiving any direct assistance? And this support for self-recovery idea is is gaining a lot of traction and it's throwing up a lot of really interesting opportunities but but complexities for us that we need to to really grasp and understand better to do our jobs more efficiently
1: in the long term self-recovery might involve reconstruction or repair of the houses that were damaged by conflict as brett mentioned this is the biggest cause of displacement internally and internationally Since 2009, the figure of 70.8 million displaced people has increased by 64%. In 2009, it was 43.3 million. For those, like Noor, who were able to return home after conflict is over, there's a huge lack of engineering knowledge when it comes to repairing homes damaged by fighting. And it was this that inspired Noor to become a civil engineer once he returned to Afghanistan after his decade living in a tent in Pakistan.
3: Well, there was almost an empty plot, just the walls were standing. And we did all of it by ourselves this time.
1: And this is a dangerous situation for refugees seeking to return home and an area where more engineering knowledge is needed. Tom Corsellis, the executive director of Shelter Centre, a Swiss-based humanitarian NGO which hosts a publicly accessible online library of humanitarian shelter publications, has been investigating the situation in relation to guidelines on recovery after conflict.
0: You might consider the sector as divided into two, disasters and conflicts. And for disasters, we've got thousands of, of technical guidelines, in fact, thousands of academics working on it. But if you look at the other half, post-conflict engineering, there's no technical guidance supporting it.
1: So now Shelter Centre's working with UNHCR to develop some guidance in four key areas, starting with an initial damage assessment scale for properties damaged by munitions.
0: The second one and all the remaining three, in fact, are related to supporting self-recovery.
1: As Jake described, self-recovery is becoming increasingly critical.
0: And we don't have the budget to be able to reconstruct the Middle East right now. What we do have the budget for, though, is to support people repairing their homes. Now, around a third of houses damaged by conflict are repairable, it's non-structural damage. Yep, so if we end up with guidance which can support self-recovery, We've got an opportunity of making a major impact on safe return, but also literally in providing safe shelter for people overnight. Now, the three different remaining components of this are one, to be able to have a way that uh, a person can enter their house in a safe way, just like the search and rescue teams are trained to do in disasters. The second of the three is a way that the person who owns the home can assess that home to find out what the, the, the types of damage are and, and essentially make a bill of quantities, so they can work out how much cost would be involved in making those repairs. And the last one is technical guidance on building repair, because literally we don't know how to repair conflict damage, so if a, a, a munition hits a wall and and the reinforcing steel in a more structural context is is deformed beyond its point of elasticity, we don't know how far back to cut that reinforcement. We don't know how much to lap or splice reinforcement and how to create a, a concrete plug on top of it, which doesn't fall out.
1: But the first step in obtaining this engineering insight for conflict scenarios, and more generally in enhancing shelter for the future, whether that's physical facilities or working on socioeconomic initiatives, is to improve communication across sectors. And this is something that was clearly happening at the UK Shelter Forum. Understanding deepened as engineers, architects and other built environment professionals obtained a greater appreciation of the challenges facing humanitarians, from political hurdles and resistance from host communities to a lack of finance and local material. At the same time, field workers heard of simple engineering solutions that could improve shelter design and construction at no extra cost. This means that the knowledge gap is closing and that can only be a good thing for the 71 million people all over the world who've been forcibly expelled from their homes. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Produced by Bernadette Ballantyne and Ross McPherson. Edited by John Young and Andrew Melius. Executive humanitarian is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our sponsor, Mott Macdonald, and the UK Shelter Forum, the University of Bath, and the Healthy Housing for the Displaced Project. Thanks too to the Shelter Cluster and Habitat for Humanity and UNHCR. Engineering Matters is available on all podcast apps, or you can listen from our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and share us on social media. You can tweet us at Engineer Matters, find us on LinkedIn and Facebook or talk about us on Reddit.